out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, fascinating stuff. Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always playing the finest in indie pop. And as you also know, I love to, um, yes, track down bands from that golden decade and subject them to um, 60 minutes of quality chat sometimes. Anyway, this time I managed to um, locate a member of Die Pretty all the way in, um, all the way from Australia. This was Brett Myers. This is the interview with me, Brett, chatting just like old people do. Yes, I had um, sort of obviously started by talking about the usual stuff. And also that time when I'd heard either John Peel or possibly Andy Kershaw play that famous song, indeed, Blue Sky Day from the album, Free Dirt. And this, we had about five minutes chat before that. And then Brett mentioned, yes, those early years that amazing album. This is it. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Brett, it's over to you. Yeah, yeah, no, it did, did pretty well, the first album. Well, the first few singles that we released did really well, and they got lots of good reviews. And Well, there was a magazine called Sounds at the time. Um, mm. There was, there was like, the big, the big three were sort of, well, there was Melody Maker Sounds and the NME, from what I remember in the mid-'80s. And we used to get really good reviews and sounds, and um, so yeah, pretty good reviews in in ME and um, and the first few singles we put out did really well, and we put some EPs out and they did well, and then the album, yeah, it was it was there was also we got picked up. There was a company called Shigaku who were um, run out of the UK. They had New York and UK offices, and then we got released in Europe and. Yeah, yeah, it was all very exciting. Yes, well, absolutely. And I think at that time, and this is one thing that I've kind of learned from doing this show, that even though things are kind of easy to put out now, back then they probably weren't, but you had these gatekeepers, and if you could get through one of the gatekeepers, and it was like, you know, there were those three music papers, and, you know, the NME mm. had a circulation of 100,000, so obviously a review in that would get you sort of yeah. well noticed, and a play on John Peel, and even at the time I thought, yeah. I didn't know many people who played, uh, listened to John Peel in my little world, which was tiny, yeah, but yeah. I realised that there's all these kind of other kids like myself, and obviously members of bands who all listen to it kind of religiously, yeah. and and mostly recorded it as well. So we, we sort of, that, that those kind of bands have been ensconced, yeah. imprinted in yeah. our brains. So, yes, the gatekeepers, like I said, yeah. um, were, were kind of hugely influential at the time. That's true. That's true, yeah, because, you know, they, um, they were sort of, well, things were curated in a way or filtered a bit more than today. It's hard to know where to start or where to get your, because, you know, there's still an avalanche of stuff. I mean, probably more so than previously released because it's, you know, just easy easier to put your stuff out. But there, it, there's less sort of resources where you can go and find out what's good and what's not. Yes, I have to say, I have to, I have to confess here. When John Peel passed away, which was kind of a horrendous moment in my life, um, I did think, oh damn. Oh, shit, I don't know who to go to. I don't know who to listen to. Because he kind of, he would sort of, 
go through all the stuff, whether it was an African album or an artist yeah. or, or sort of reggae or kind of thrash metal. You know, he seemed to do the work and say, look, I found this really good reggae song. You don't need to listen to 30 really awful ones. I've done the work for you. And actually, he kind of, exactly. you know, exactly. and, and yeah. that was really hard. But the other thing that um, I've always put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths. So, you know, that was not the greatest theory. Yeah. But there, there seemed to be a sort of a, a sort of a five year period where, you know, we'd had the punk period and then that post punk stuff with magazine yeah. and gang yeah. four and pill. Yeah. And then the jingly jangly sound, which always sounds a bit yeah. sort of like it's put down a bit, but it's not, you know, because the Smiths were hardly fay, even though, yeah. I mean, some yeah. people thought they were. They still had a rocking sound. But yes, but you yeah. were virtually there during the same period of the Smiths. So what was your sort of musical background before 83 what were you listening to and what did you grow up uh, well i had a band called the end before died pretty and we were from brisbane i originally was born in melbourne and then we moved to brisbane when i was about 13 and i sort of spent my formative years teenage years in brisbane and which was a pretty horrible place to be honest but you know um i loved i guess i loved the velvet underground more than anything that was my number one band which was a pretty lonely sort of fandom in you know late 70s there wasn't many people early 80s 80s that got people were a bit more into it but anyway um i loved probably you know the velvets and new york dolls and sort of the pre i, I loved punk but i liked the sort of precursors you know the jonathan richmond's and the the sort of television and stuff like that, you know, yeah. that was where I really liked it. And that and whole you, New and, York scene. And were you into those kind of the nugget scene, like the Sonics and then the Stooges? I liked it, but it wasn't, it didn't, I, you know, I, I liked it and it was fun and, and um, you know, but it wasn't sort of, I didn't go out and try and play covers or learn those songs and they, they were fun and I really enjoyed them but what I really wanted to basically I just formed a band so I could go and do lots of Velvet Underground covers yes. that's what I wanted to do and um I have to admit, because back in those days, I, my brother used to, uh, I think my brother had some sort of rock book, you know, and um, I'd look through this and it was quite interesting because then, you know, if you read about a record that was a classic, That's you right. didn't have the chance to listen yeah. to it first. So, you know, I went off and got the Marvin Gaye yeah. one and I, I did also yeah. get the Velvet Underground album as well. And again, just because it was like, you've got to listen to this and I read about yeah. it, I thought That's good. Yeah. Didn't have an opportunity to listen to it. And I was really surprised that the first track was Sunday Morning. I thinking I didn't expect it to be like this at all and then suddenly it sort of changes yeah. doesn't it so it was kind of an, it was an interesting time to listen to music and obviously we all had to get Captain Beefheart's track mask replica which was well kept... I loved I loved I loved yeah I love Captain Beefheart and we used to do we used to cover a Captain Beefheart song and die pretty there's um we used to do a couple actually and um you know well I mean there's the uh, you know what I'm just trying to think of covers we did in die pretty Perubu and and um, we did Captain Beefheart and, yeah, maybe a Modern Lovers song, a few things like that, you know, sort of eclectic things that I liked. In fact, Ron, I met Ron the singer. He was in another band in Brisbane at the time that I had my band, that sort of Velvet Underground band, The End, and he used to really like us. But, I mean, I wrote a lot. Of, I mean, the set in the end was about 50% originals and 50% covers, and Ron came. We used to share stages and bills with, with Ron's band and, um, Anyway, he really liked the end, my band, and 
I think the first night he, he he sort of struck up a conversation and he just sort of said, oh, you know, I think your band's really good, but you need a lead singer. And I said, oh, because I, I said, but I'm the singer. He says, no, nah, you need me. And he said, oh, I should be a singer. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And I, I, th- I thought about that for, you know, a while. I mean, I just sort of laughed. and But it was, I kept going with the end for about another year or two and then that sort of fell apart and then we sort of reconstituted um after that and and then then Ron did indeed become the lead singer and in fact like the start of Die Pretty was basically we had the original the drummer and the bass player from the end and we played probably about half a dozen end songs and then I wrote new songs for the for the for Die Pretty and and we we probably recorded four or five end songs for um for Die Pretty Uh, on the first album there's a song called Just Skin and that was a uh, that was an end song, and um, yeah, so that had a, that was sort of important. Um, but yeah, so before that, it was and Brisbane was a very, although it was sort of politically a horrible place to live in at the time. It was there was a because it was so um, political, you sort of had to band together with um, other like-minded people, and and there was a smaller town, so you sort of had it was very cross-genre sort of town. So I mean, like you, you know, the go-betweens and the sort of most hardcore of punk bands we, we'd all sort of hang out together because we weren't sort of similar but we were definitely different than everyone else we just all sort of hung out together for, for protection more than anything else you know yeah the police would often raid the police would often raid all of the venues that we'd play at and people would be arrested and they were trying to stamp out punk rock music and you know so it was it was um sort of we just sort of stuck together and you know, one day you'd be sharing with the go-betweens or then it'd be in, you'd be with an electro sort of band or then you'd be playing with the leftovers who was sort of like a hardcore punk band. And But, yeah, it was a very – musically it was a very fertile place and, and, and it was sort of important to my yeah. development. Because, in you know, in the dear old UK at that early 80s, we'd sort of had – Thatcher came into power in um, 90, uh, 79 and then we had sort of huge yeah. unemployment and then there'd been the Falkland crisis – which then made everybody very patriotic and excitable. Well, the mainstream, which was, was which which was quite you know quite strong at the time, and then you yeah. know you had that minor strike, and then you had even more sort of power from the Tory government yeah. and, and Maggie, and and so a lot of the people that I do, I've interviewed during that period were young, you know, obviously you at that youth, yeah. youthful age, and there was nothing. No opportunities, nothing to look forward to. So people, a lot of people, yeah. on uh, you know, claiming unemployment benefit or job seekers allowance or enterprise yeah. allowance, which was even better because yeah. you could sort of claim for a year and pretend to be yeah. a self-employed somebody. And a lot of people became self-employed yeah, yeah, yeah. musicians, which was quite handy. So there was kind of like, well, we might as well be in a band because, frankly, we're just going, we're on the dolls. So we might as well make a noise. And um, did what was the kind yeah. of the social and political kind of environment like in Australia at that time? Um, very similar. We in Queensland, in particular, there was a a guy in charge called Joby Peterson. It was just this horrible sort of right wing nut job, like more right wing than Margaret Thatcher. And he just tried to outlaw any type of dissent or rebellion, and just sort of you know people were arrested left, right, and centre. And and um, and yeah, the doll was really easy to get. That was when unemployment was pretty high. Um, I don't know if that was anything like in England, but. It, um, and yeah, we all were on. Basically, we were all on the dollar. It was really easy to get, and and it wasn't that expensive to live, and you could sort of get by reasonably, you know. And then we just sort of yeah, it was a great adjunct to sort of being in a band, and uh, you know, it's a lot. It was a lot easier to sort of be creative and and still 
get by financially in those days, I think, than it is now. It doesn't seem to be um, anywhere as easy. And I mean, there's just less unemployment, it would seem to me. I don't know the figures, but it just, there was just a lot of youth unemployment back then. And, um, and, and it was easy to get sort of, you know, easy to get the doll and we, we took full advantage of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, it was bizarrely looking back, it was almost like a career option for most people. They went, yeah, I'll be on the doll yeah. for a few years and then sort of get yeah. myself together. But, you know, it wasn't like um, a stigma. It was almost like a, ne- a, a strange no. inevitability to sort of have a, a year or two doing that and sort of until you got yeah. so bored you thought, well, I might as well go and do something else. But it didn't seem such yeah. a bad thing. Yes, everything got paid and you got £40 and everything was cheap. We were smelly, though. We didn't wash a lot, I have to say. You know, it was a pretty... Uh, <laughs> personal hygiene was really low, but um, never mind. I think the main thing that changed is when you got girlfriends and, you know, and obviously we all hated each other's girlfriends and that was the end of that shared house experience. <laughs> it was a disaster. But look, yes. having spoke to a lot of people, they often have a few years in a band kind of before anything yes. kind of happens. And, and yes. you know, like the five-year narrative that I've developed, you know, like, you know, you're in a band for about 12 months, you make a sound. As long as it's not a cover of Johnny Be Good, John, you know, and it's a bit weird. John Peel would play it. You get the John Peel session, then that first album, everything's going well. The tour, brilliant. Then, oh dear, the tricky second album. And if anybody in the UK ever toured America, they came back broken emotionally, spiritually. So, how long did it take for <laughs> um, for Die Pretty to sort of get a sound that you made made anybody want to listen to who weren't your sort of friends, family, and anybody yeah. else you wanted to emotionally blackmail to come to see you live? It's pretty pretty much our second single actually the first single was called out of the unknown and that was a pretty uh, slow start i mean people liked it and and and, i mean we had a very bad reputation for live playing people thought we were terrible to start with and we were a bit um fragile we had uh, we were mercurial i guess we had sometimes we were just brilliant and sometimes we were pretty shambolic and anyway so the first single came out and that sort of did sort of okay and it wasn't sort of any great, there was no great breakthrough, but it was certainly, um, we made our mark and it was this different sound and people were quite intrigued by it. And then we did our second single, which was called Mirror Blues, and that was a like a 12-minute song. And I had this brainwave of uh, putting on this, because we released it on a seven-inch single, so we sort of like flipped it. There was a part A and part B. <laughs> so we put part A on one side and part B on the other. And I, I can't remember. I'm sure I've must have taken that from some, somewhere, some single that I used to like. Um, anyway, so we did that, and that got a lot of attention. I remember it got really good reviews in sort of some UK papers. And then we did a, we did, we still just played around Australia at this time. And then we put out um, an EP for track twelve inch called Next to Nothing, and that had. I remember when we did that, I thought, well, I'm going to put some of the more challenging or more sort of you know stuff that was pushing in a direction that was against the current trends in music and so we put a lot of we put a few sort of different types of songs on that and that and that did really really well got got great reviews and and um and a lot of interest and was picked up by was released in i think it was released in france and then released in in the uk and 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 um really sort of changed things a lot for us and and then and then after that they like there was a tour sort of we got we got offers of tours in Europe and which was pretty unheard of in those days. I mean it was just 
especially for sort of you know crappy little sort of indie bands like us playing around Sydney. I mean, it was you know trip to Melbourne was a big thing for us in those days. Yeah, and um, so we got we we with went and recorded the first album, and that was sort of going to be released to coincide with the first tour. And it ended up being this like world tour. We, um, <laughs> I should say all of this stuff happened with um, this record label called Citadel who, um, and um, a guy called Rob Younger, who was in a band called Radio Birdman. And he, um, he produced all the records and, you know, Rob's more of the producer that sort of, he's not a technical guy, but he's, great in sort of give, point, pointing you in the right direction, you know, and giving you honest feedback about what's good and what's not. And I guess at the end of the day, he was one of the few people that Ron, our singer, would really, really respect it and would actually listen to and take direction from. And uh, and Ron sort of, you know, a bit of a free spirit and he's sort of hard to rein in, but he would definitely listen to Rob's opinion and definitely act on that. And and it all worked really well. And then we, we sort of finished the first album this is all in the space of about i don't know two years and and the and then the and then in 86 i guess it was three years we took off and went from god we went everywhere we just left i mean we went to new zealand first and then we went to and then we landed in new york and then we played around america for about two weeks then we went to the uk then we went to france then we went to like Italy and Germany and Denmark and Spain and uh, I don't know Holland and just everywhere. We went. We just toured for like three, yeah, and the record got released all over Europe and and America, and we just toured nonstop. And uh, yes, and it did take a bit of a toll on some of the members. Some of the some of the band members thrived, and I personally I loved that I could have gone on forever, which is great because because uh, the odd thing was. None of us in the band had ever been outside of Australia before, so it's a bit of a bit of a culture shock in in a lot of ways. And and but some of the guys in the band just didn't, you know, handle it at all well. And it just seemed there wasn't anything, you know, there were no sort of pivotal moments or sort of bad stuff that happened. It's just like you know, some people just don't like being away and don't like the whole like, touring lifestyle. And the bass player Mark was one of those, and he just mentally just did not cope with being away from his familiar surroundings at home and 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 just 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 sort of like was very unhappy most of the time and we sort of but we were having such a great time and there were such great audiences we just kept going and we ended up I think one of the last places we played was Italy and it just kept escalating and we you know we played huge places in Italy and the crowds like uh, knew all the songs and were singing along and it just was we were a bit taken aback. It was fantastic. Yes. And um, anyway, we, we, we got to a stage where Mark just basically freaked out and we had to, he, he just couldn't, he just wouldn't or couldn't play anymore. And then he just refused. He wanted to go home and we ended up sort of going back to Sydney. And then he eventually left the band. Well, he said he would be happy to play, but he wasn't leaving. He said he'd play with the band, but he wouldn't leave Sydney again. So it was a bit hard for us. Yes. <laughs> we had greater ambitions playing around Sydney at that stage. So he was, I mean, we were still friends and we actually got him to, we had, we did a second album and we got him to play on the second album and, and with, with the understanding that he wouldn't be touring it. And then we had to go and find a new bass player, but, but, you know, for all Mark's faults, 
um, he was a fantastic bass player and he had a large um, say in a lot of the sound that made us unique. His bass playing was, was just great. I mean, there was a phrase coined, I can't, probably might even be by Grant McLennan. He used to say, talk about the, the Brisbane bass player style, which was sort of like this, you know, he would, there were a lot of people, who, some people in Brisbane who played in bands that were, well, he was a great exponent of it. He used to play a lot of, he basically would play melodies on the bass. When it, when it, when I used to see the go-betweens, my memories of the go-betweens, I probably saw more shows of them when they were a three-piece than anything else, uh, just playing around Brisbane in the early days from, you know, I saw their first show in like, whatever it was, 79, and and I used to see them all the time and, and they, as a three-piece with him on bass and Robert on the guitar. And Grant would just play lots of melodies on his bass. He wouldn't sort of, you know, the typical bass player thing is you follow the chords and sort of flesh out the bottom end of the, the chords, but he didn't do anything like that. He just he was a melodic sort of bass player and used to play lots of melodies on the bass, which sort of worked because Robert is not, whatever Robert's strengths are, he's not sort of a guitar whiz, you know. He um, just plays very basic chords and, and, you know, he relies on his songwriting and uh, Grant really helped flesh out all of that. It was a great combination, basically, and, and that sort of style, Mark took that to a new level. I think he was just fantastic and set the sort of blueprint for what the band sounded like in many ways as regards to the bass playing and he was yeah he was just great i mean as musically he was fantastic yes because i i can't remember which which member of of the Jimi hendrix experience it was either i always get the drummer and bass player's name and slightly mixed yeah so he was a rhythm and guitarist before being sort of put like actually we've got a lead guitarist he's quite good Jimi hendrix could you play the bass (laughs) you play the bass (laughs) and he did so but he brought quite a different quality to that you know the experience the Jimi hendrix you know because you know he didn't just have to plod along he wanted to do something slightly different and lemmy from motorhead also started as a rhythm guitarist and though he always said he wasn't very good at it he he, you know he was in the rocking vickers and then he got the gig with hawkwind and then um yeah, yeah, so his bass playing with Motorhead was quite unusual as well. So, um, yes, it does it does add a lot, actually. And I'm always amazed now, you know, at the time when you're a fan, you think, God, it must be the best thing in the world being in the band. But then you think, God, dynamically, you know, you're, you know, you're working 24-7 with this group of people and you haven't all sat down and had a proper conversation about how this is going to work and who does what. And, yeah. and, and all the admin, there's so much admin that no one bothers with until it all goes wrong. <laughs> yes and that kind of makes everyone go oh really we didn't so yeah so when you because the thing is being a fan we always like bands who weren't from from our area so anybody coming out of new york you go oh god i just love them even if you hadn't heard of them because you know they just kind of you know you just (laughs) you you just want to discover that new band that no one else has i mean that was incredibly important i mean Face Value by Phil Collins just wasn't going to cut it, was it? Let's face it, everyone. But you wanted that obscure band that, you know, was yours. So for for sort of, you know, so having, you know, the go-tweens, the Triffids, um, and then Die Pretty, you know, it made you feel a bit more of a, you know, interesting person, you know, eclectic. You know, we like to use the word eclectic when we talk about our music taste, even if it's not. (laughs) 
so I can yeah, see but, why you would have picked up such a big following, you know, as well from, you know, the yeah. indie scene, because because during that period, the NME, especially a melody maker to an extent, you know, were really champion that sound and with the Smiths as well. Yeah. And then you had the June Brides and you'd had Orange Juice as well. So anything like that. Say, Orange Juice masculine. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So when you came to doing the second album, was that, you know, obviously you'd already had, you know, Rum with placement. Yeah. So was that were, were the band was the band still an exciting enterprise at that stage? Because often the second album can be a bit. Uh, it was more really. It was just more of the same. Um, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean we did it same studio, same production team, same you know mix of songs. Like you know there was a couple of old end songs and there was a couple. I mean I wrote a few more songs on the second album. I mean, when I say wrote, like I mean, I wrote the, 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 the lyrics and the and the music and a bit more of my own songs. But I mean, it was just it was it just it wasn't that hard. It was actually easier than the first album. It was slightly we you know because it was uh, no, it was it, the second album wasn't that hard. It was the third album that was the hard one for us um, because you know the the second album was basically like I said more of the same. Same record label, same same production team, same studio, blah blah, same lineup. All yes. the, the people were exactly the same, same, you know. So that that no, nah, it was the second one was quite easy to be honest, and I, I don't mean that badly. It was yes. just we just kept we did what we knew and did it again. But, but the third well, it's album, was, bizarrely, I mean, the Smiths' first album I always thought was dreadful, really, you know, production wise. But it was when it's they did not that. My favorite album, yeah. But that production they had on Hatful of Hollow, which was kind of all the John, yeah, the BBC yeah. sessions were great. And then they started to get a better producer. They just didn't get a good producer. Because you'd been in the UK, though you'd been on Citadel in Australia, in the UK you were on what's What Goes On records, weren't you? What Goes On, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. And then Beggar's Banquet as well for the for the second yes. album. Did you find... Yes, that was... I was going to say, did you find working through those kind of kind of worlds of publishing and record labels kind of something that you were doing, or was your management doing that? Our uh, management was doing it more, but I was pretty involved in it. I, I really liked it. It just seemed, well, this is great. It's obviously like it felt like we were really getting somewhere, and you know, we could actually potentially, you know, make a living from this, and 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 which was sort of. You know, or only ever a dream, and and um, it sort of validated in my mind what we were doing, and um, yeah, I was involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah. Um, it was something that interested me. Excellent. So the third album, Every Brilliant Eye, you went to L.A. drug capital of yes, the world. That was, that was the typical one. Yeah. Well, that was see, we had we had. I knew, which see, Beggar's Banquet came on board with the second album, but that was already recorded when they signed us up. So they just took that as it was. Um, but for the third album, we we signed. They had um, uh, they wanted to be involved in a little bit. You know, they were happy they to be involved in the sort of mechanics of getting the the third album done, and they you know wanted us to sort of spread out a bit and maybe think about getting international producers and thinking about, you know, it was the thing with LA was more about the choice of producer, but I'll get into that in a second. But I mean, so we had a new label 
We had um, we had new new producer. We also had two new band members by this stage. So um, Mark, you know, as I said, only recorded the second album as a I'm not, I don't want to say a session person, but he was under the proviso that he wasn't going to tour it, and and we all knew that. And so the first thing we did was had to find a new bass player, and we got a we found a guy called Steve Clark who was a in the he was an engineer at I think it was EMI in Sydney, and it was just a friend of a friend holders, and he came and played, and he he seemed to you know um, be fine and seemed to know you know musically he seemed to fit in and seemed to be keen to tour, which was one thing we were um, wanted. And, um, and you know, he's basically still the bass player at this point. I mean, we had uh, another we had another one in between, but we'll, we'll get to there. Um, um, so we had a new bass player and then we also had a new keyboard player, which was the hardest thing. I mean, well, just me personally, because Frank Reardy was very sort of a close friend of mine and still is, and but he had a lot of problems and... You know, he basically had to, he left the band because because health problems and drug problems and this problem and and you know. But I, it was a very uh, tough time for me because you know he didn't sort of leave by his own devices. It was more there was a lot of turmoil and some people wanted him to stay and some wanted to go and I was in the stay camp and eventually I was overruled and it was all very you know it was probably the worst time of the band for me. But anyway, that sort of passed and he um, left and we got a guy called John Hoeyan who was another old friend from Brisbane and um, he he played in a few sort of punk bands in, in Sydney and he moved to Sydney as well and uh, he had a completely different style of Frank um, which we had to accommodate So because Frank was more of a one-finger guy. I mean, I used to... <laughs> I used to get a text, uh, you know, like a a, a a marker and write the names of the of the notes on his keyboard so he could find them. I used to write, you know, G, A, B, C, T, and I'd go, okay, Frank, play G now, and he'd look around for the key and press it. So yeah, that was, that's how Frank used to, you know, play. Excellent. And um, but, Yeah, but, you know, it was, it was great because it really – set us apart because at, when we were starting out because he wasn't sort of a virtuoso by any means and he he had this you know I'd say look you know just play these notes over that and he'd just tinker away and play a couple of little notes on top of uh, um the, the whatever we were playing and and but you know which 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 was really nice and you know but also he had when when he knew how to make a racket with it as well I think he once described his relationship with me like is it Jill Burt, the girl from the Triffids, who plays keyboards? Yes. Uh, who played keyboards? They had a keyboard player. And he said, oh, you know, my, I've, I've noticed that my relationship with you is somewhat like hers with um, the guy from the Triffids. Who, she seemed to play just a few notes as well, and he seemed to be the guy from the Triffids seemed to be directing how it was sort of played. And I said, yeah, that's fair enough. But Howie wasn't like that at all. Howie was a very good player and, and, and sort of was was sort of – yeah, I mean, our main problem with Howie was sort of restraining him from playing. We just sort of like, can we just tie one hand behind your back so you can only play a few notes? <laughs> right. So you were going. Anyway. So you were you slightly worried that you were going to start sounding like prog rock or Marillion? Oh, just 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 we were going to sound more normal. Yeah, that was my biggest worry. 
more standard, you know. I didn't. I, I, I was worried about losing our uniqueness. That's what I was worried about. But then again, we had Ron, and we would never be normal. Like we would never be. We'd definitely lose our uniqueness with Ron, the singer in the band. That's for sure. Anyway, so we had all this whole new crew, and then we had a. We, you know, I felt like we were reached the big time because you know we were given a list of of producers to choose from from Vegas Banquet who they thought was suitable, and there was a whole whole bunch of you know there were english guys and american guys and blah 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 and so you know we were picking and choosing and you know and we ended up with this guy jeff eirick who had done you know the plimsolls and the gun club and people like that and and you know um uh, we thought that would be good <laughs> i can't i can't really you know choosing a producer it's really you, you normally would cho- you choose them for all the wrong reasons. Like, yeah, I mean, typically you choose a producer because you want you, you've listened to records that they've made in the past and you think oh, I want to sound like that. But you know, most of the time the the, the records sound like that because of the band, not the producer. But anyway, we 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 chose Jeff Irick because because you know I love that guy. There was a Gun Club album he'd made called The Las Vegas Story, which I thought was fantastic, and. um he and the Plimsolls and a few other long riders. And, you know, he was a sort of American indie rock producer, but I'll sort of, you know, upper level sort of indie rock bands, not just sort of, anyway, I like the sound of his records and we went with him and yeah. So we were, we were flying to LA and, you know, put it, we were were living in Hollywood and it's funny, the church would just down the road from us. I used to see them in, you know, they'd be going off. They were making Gold Afternoon fix this album uh, yes. that was the sort of straight after Starfish, their big album. And they, 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 they ended up. We ended up sharing their man. We've got a, a, a US manager as, as well, Mike Lembo, who was managing them. But anyway, I used to see them. You know, and they'd be, it'd be like they'd be off to work at some studio, and we'd be off going off to some studio. And anyway, and but you know, Jeff Irick was just so different um like for our work sensibility like he 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 would start at 9 a.m and finish at five and then send us all home at five o'clock and we were just like we were just getting started at that stage you know we'd amble in at sort of lunchtime if if he was lucky and and then he and and i'm used to i was always well typically the first one in the studio and i might get there at nine o'clock or ten o'clock and and he would he would come in he would drive in and his hair would I can still remember his hair would still be wet because and he'd be like have a wetsuit on because he'd been out surfing and he was just you know he'd be been surfing for two hours before the, the, the session started I'm just going you know we're not in we're not in Sydney and this is this is very different than the sort of way we used to work <laughs> anyway so yeah we had a lot of challenges and and. You know, at the end of the day, I think we made a pretty good record and, and, and it sounded, I mean, it sounded different, but that was the point. I mean, we didn't want to do all of that to sound like it was another indie rock record from Trafalgar. Yeah. Um, so it was a bigger sound. It was a bit slicker sound. And, you know, I, yeah, I listened to it today. It's still great, but I think it's the first one that breaks the mould is the one that people react against. And once once that sort of, you can, you know, that that left us a bit more of an open slather after that. Basically, it, uh, people were a bit taken aback by how it sounded sonically because we'd we'd had this new lineup and we'd, we'd 
recorded in America and blah 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 blah. Yes. So and there um, was and just as <laughs> and, and just to ask you one question. You had additional personnel mm. and the violin player who um Jani is it Jani Jacoby? Yeah, look, I you know, I mean basically I always I always actually liked having other people come in and do stuff. I mean I'd done it on the first album had you know, we got Lewis Tillett in to play piano on, on a song, the guy from the Wet Taxis. He did a fantastic job. We got um, we got the guy from the Triffids, Graham Lee, came and played sly guitar on, on this is on this is on the first album, Free Dirt. Graham Lee from the Triffids played on it. Um, I got I got a oh I got a guy playing sax on a couple of songs. I always like to sort of you know use the studio rather than just go in and record how we sounded live i mean i i mean which we we did to a great extent but i i I like to sort of tinker with stuff and try a few different things out and you know those things worked out really well they sounded great and (coughs) i mean on the second album we got a guy called don walker who plays in in australia there's a a band called cold chisel who were a very big commercial band probably the biggest band in australia at the time and he just happened to be in the studio and he was picking up some tapes of his and I sort of wrangled him into playing on the, one of our songs and we got a girl called Astrid. We, I got a girl that called Astrid Mundy to play on a couple of songs and, and, and yeah, I, I used to rope in people. Yes. How did you come? Because I did, it was just that I'd done an interview with John, John Andrew Frederick who was uh, kind of in the Black I, Watch, and um, and he mentioned her. She was in that band, wasn't she? Yes, and then she now plays with yeah. Bob Stewart in L, uh, in Las Vegas. So I, I was just right? like, yes, I know. He, you know, she decided <laughs> that she was going to go and get a proper job and work with Rod Stewart. What? You know, good luck to her. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come across her? How we came into contact with her is... Um, I said to Jeff Eric, I said, look, you know, um, I really want, there was one song, I said, look, I want strings on this, you know, and he was like, oh, I don't know about strings. Well, you know, I want a violin, I want some strings. I don't want, maybe not an orchestra, but I want some, you know. Um, it was a song, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was a song that I really, really wanted strings on. And um, he was like, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, fine. And he he basically said, oh, I've got a friend. There's this plays um, violin in this band called The Black Watch. She's really, really good, um, you know. And I'm like, yeah, fine, great. <laughs> um, and that's, it was purely through Jeff Irick. And she came in and she was um, she was really nice. And I said, look, you know, just we just want a bit of – I told her what I wanted and um, – she she did a great you know job. I mean, I probably would have liked an orchestra, you know, not all like a four piece or something like that, um, yeah. you know, quartet. But look, she did a great job, and I was I was quite happy. Um, yeah, face to, toward the sun. But that was the, the song, and um, yeah, she was just came in one day and, and I chatted to her, told her what I wanted. And she 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 knocked it out in a couple of hours and that was that and it was great i've never seen her before or since but she was like no i just um, yes i just did an interview with him and 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 she you know he mentioned that the his you know because he'd obviously john had taken the path of being a sort of a 
an artist and, um, you know, often, and he was very self-deprecating in the sense that you just realise it's going mm. to be a, a life of misery and pain. But, you know, you get to make some music at the same time, which kind of offsets the all the other ups and lots of downs. And um, he mentioned yeah. this person that he'd worked with a lot and eventually she, she decided to um, go go with Rod. <laughs> she probably wants sort of comfortable hotels and you know it's just a nice it's just a good change sometimes anyway you know she's probably done the hard yard so good luck to her yes absolutely um, because because yeah. the we one had a, we had a bunch of i was going to say the one thing the other thing that i'd sort of noticed from doing all these shows was that um you know like i mentioned my great five-year narrative thought, uh, theory the other thing that knocked a lot of bands out was that around 87 was when sadly the smiths came to an end and then the indie pop world had started to change mainly because of drugs and people started getting into dance music so there was that kind of suddenly yeah. everybody wanted to sound like the happy mondays and stone roses and the soup dragons mm-hmm. and and stuff like that and a lot of those bands like the wolfhounds mm-hmm. and yeah yeah no and all those classic bands that we loved were just thinking oh god i'm not going to get into dance music we're too old at yeah. the age of 26, yeah. to to try and make a sound. So that, that kind of knocked a lot of bands out, but you managed to get into the yeah. 90s and just, yes. I know. Uh, and grunge. And grunge, I know, because that was like dance, grunge, then Britpop. So then you, you, you were still trucking on with Doughboy Hollow. Uh-huh. Yeah, that that was like a revival of our career. Or revival. It was. I think they described it as a renaissance. I'd read it in a few. You know, because um, we we never sort of like fell flat or anything. I mean, we everybody and I did okay. It didn't sort of, um, but it did the, just a change of sound and direction. I mean, if we just made another album that sounded like that, Lost and and Free Dirt, it, you know, it would have been just as um, it wouldn't have changed our career tra- trajectory that much, I don't think. But anyway, so after Every Brilliant Eye, we did think, hmm, maybe what we want to do is um, we were a bit burnt. We didn't have a good time recording um, in, in Los Angeles. There was too many distractions and too many – it was just hard. And uh, we still were keen – to use a different producer, and again we went through a list of producers, and um, and there was one guy who seemed really keen uh, called Hugh Jones, and he'd done Echo and the Bunnymen, and I, when I saw that, I went, yeah, I want him. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, and he done he did their not their first album, which is my absolute favourite, but he did their second album. Yes, Heaven Up Here. Yeah. That's the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. He I, look, I, he produced or slash engineered producer. He was exactly the opposite of Jeff Irigan, that he was an engine. He was an engineer almost first, and then a producer second. But he worked on his own. He did the whole lot. He didn't like Jeff would just sit there, and and there was a guy called Gary who would do all of the actual knob twiddling. But uh, Hugh was right into everything. I mean, you had had a long, long career in English music. He started in the 60s at IBC, and, you know, you'd pick up, I remember picking up On the Level by Status Quo. I'm sure you might have seen that when you, uh, it's you know, it's a classic sort of, you know, early 70s boogie album. And, you know, there's like a sort of 20-year-old Hugh Jones at, in, where it was recorded, you know, twiddling the knobs there, and he's been all over. He's done everything, and yes. um, and he was. I mean, in I was just looking in the eighties, he just 
did so many albums, didn't he? And indie albums yeah. from and really obscure bands like Stump and that Petrol Emotion, yeah. Icicle Works, The yeah. Damned, and um, The Saints, James. I mean, yeah. he was he yeah, literally, yeah. which was uh, yeah. <laughs> considering he started in the sixties, he absolutely found yeah. his feet in the um, in the eighties. I mean, he was very young. I mean, he was still he was a little bit older than us, but not that. He was maybe. 10 years older than us at the time. But he he was a workaholic and what, what we did was that we we decided on him and then we were happy to go wherever he wanted to go and he where he wanted to go was Australia. And we went, oh, okay. So <laughs> we said, well, we know a good studio. We've done a few good albums in this place called Trafalgar and he was like, oh, okay. So out he flew and we we just convened back at the old studio but with, with a new person behind the desk and... It just was great. Um, he he just had the studio. He was he was fantastic, and he. I think the great thing about him is that he was in. He was very empathetic to what we were doing, but he was also a complete workaholic, who never seemed to sleep or eat, and seemed to live off a diet of beer and and cigarettes, and with the occasional sort of biryani thrown in that he'd make us go up to the local Indian store and get. And that was his diet. I mean, seriously, he would, because we were all different people. Ron was the singers of quite a night person and I'm, I'm not so much. And, you know, he would start at 10 in the morning and i come in at 11 or 12 and he'd been there for an hour or so already. And then he would work all through till to to dinner time if he ate that day he seemed to eat every second day but and then he would he would sort of i'd be worn out and then he'd get ron in and then he'd work with ron from sort of like eight o'clock at night till three four five in the morning send him home he'd go home for three or four hours sleep and come back and do it again and he did that every day for maybe three or four weeks and never a day off never anything and 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 honestly, like he just he just smoked. He changed. This is the old days when he could smoke in the studio. He just chain smoked cigarettes, and 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 at six five o'clock at night, he'd just get a six pack and drink that through the night, and get his four hours sleep and do it again. And he just he was like, but he was very he was great with everyone. He had a great sort of personal touch, um, and and. He just got beautiful, sort of organic sounds. Like it, it was, it was, he was wonderful. Um, so yeah. yes, so this must have been such a relief because normally a bad, you know, a experience like your third yeah. album normally is the yeah. one that everyone comes home and thinks actually I'm just had enough. It's not like you're, you've, you know, like I don't know, one of the bands like I don't know, I suppose you two or the Simple Minds, where you, well, I don't know about Simple Minds, but you know where you just think, well, we've made millions and it. I can cope, yeah. but you know, not when there's yeah. not a huge amount of money, and you're thinking, "God, I've really not enjoyed that last year." Most people give it a miss, yeah. but you obviously managed to keep it rocking on about on that. I had a bunch. I can remember after every brilliant eye, um, like we'd done tours for that and blah blah blah. And I ended up in in London. I was living. I had about a month off for whatever reason, and the band wasn't playing, and I was staying at the manager's flat in Highbury, Highbury Grange, actually. I was there on my own for about a month, and it was quite dull and depressing, and I wrote a lot of songs there because <laughs> there was not much else to do. And, I just, and I'd just and i written this bunch of really, I thought they were great songs, and, and 
I really wanted to do them and Ron really liked them and, and he, you know, wrote some good melodies and whatever. So these songs were what basically constituted Doughboy Hollow, most of them. These songs I'd written in Highbury Grange and, you know, it was like a sort of, it was on the top floor of this like four or five story sort of terrace house and it's, you know, the bathroom was four floors down and it was very cold and, yeah, anyway, so I just sat there and, and, and wrote all this stuff and, and I really wanted to get it done and everyone, we did some demos and everyone liked the song. So we just, we went ahead and did them and, and you know, it was, it just, it was a nice confluence of, with you, Jones, the good material, everyone was sort of, for whatever reason, in the right headspace and it, it worked out great. And, and, and the songs, everyone loved the songs and, 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 the album just had a the, the production had a beautiful, like I said before, an organic sort of feel. I guess it just felt didn't feel forced. It just felt polished. It was like what we did, but just nicely polished. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yes, nice. You had the the magic fairy dust of a good producer, but you were still. I mean, this was during the period when you know we were going crazy for Britpop from Pulp to Blur to um, Oasis. And so you must have, did you feel that you were able to sort of somehow surf into that kind of slipstream with, um, you know, because everybody... I, no <laughs> I just wondered if you... I had no idea. Yes. You go on. And, and uh, well, because there were a few indie bands from the 80s who just broke up and then, well, you know, a few years later watching Top of the Pops thinking, oh, God, we should be on there, shouldn't we? You know, we kind of gave <laughs> up just before that kind of exploded yeah. and yeah. suddenly, you know, record, you know, because that whole indie scene from the 80s was quite marginalised, yeah. really, but then it became very mainstream, you know, within a relatively yeah. short period of time but you you know you were sort of trucking right through one decade into the 90s yeah. so with your next album trace which came out yeah. only a few years later which you know yeah. five albums by now and and the band still together this is pretty yeah. amazing going yeah it is i mean the thing that really helped was uh hollow was a very big success in uh australia which was something that was very new to us because up until then We'd released what the three albums and a whole bunch of you know stuff before that, and that they'd all been very popular in Europe um, compared to our home country in Australia, and you know we were, we were, we played some bigger crowds in in Italy and Spain and France than we ever did in Sydney, and we we spent most of that. I mean, we must have done four or five European tours between '86 and '90. We were going once a year, maybe twice a year, and playing three, four months nonstop. And, you know, we might play about half a dozen shows in Australia at that time, you know, conversely. But the, what happened is when we put out Doughboy Hollow, it did well, like, critically in, in Europe and America, but it actually did well commercially in Australia. And it was suddenly, like, there was a lot of demand for us to play in Australia, and we, we started touring a lot in Australia and getting really good crowds. And that's what sort of kept us kept us going, but just, you know, renewed our sort of um, faith in what we were doing. And it was, um, it was really, you know, it was the first time we'd had any commercial success at all in Australia. So that was, that was a real, that, that helped a lot. And consequently, we spent a lot more time here and we stopped, we didn't tour Europe that much. And we did, we did Trace, which was sort of a, 
we just stuck with the same production and we wanted to work with you again. And we moved into a bigger, fancier studio, which I don't know was a great idea. But anyway, um, we had, there were other problems with Trace. It, you know, the, the success of Doughboy Hollows sort of hadn't helped Ron that much. He, he sort of took advantage of it <laughs> and didn't focus enough on, 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 on Trace and um, I mean he had to we weren't happy with some of the stuff he'd done and he had to redo a lot of vocals etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway that that, we, that did okay too for us yes. that was probably our most completely successful album in Australia I don't know what, how it went in, in Europe or America but uh, so how does, yeah, so how does that album sit with you now because because Ron really hated that didn't he I mean from from sort of interviews yeah. and comments. I just wondered how you – did you feel the same? He, he hated the experience. He doesn't hate the album. He hated the experience of making it because he he was very cocky after um, um, uh, Doughboy Hollow and I think he just – he didn't he didn't give Trace the attention or the, the time or the love that he gave Doughboy Hollow and he just – he expected it to just – be good um, because he was on it and it wasn't and he and he, and he I think he regrets not giving it his all like he did some of the other records and 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 having said that it's probably you know maybe the material isn't all of it is not quite as strong as Doughboy was but it's still pretty good and there were still some really good songs on there and 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 you know I just vocally it's not his greatest performance that's what I would say whereas on Doughboy he he just he was fantastic you know he and I guess it's one of those pressure things on Doughboy Holland there was no pressure at all because every brilliant I wasn't sort of um there wasn't it wasn't a, a record that we had to top or or or, or you know, there wasn't there was no commercial pressure to sell as much because it hadn't done that great for us. It had done okay, but you know, there was no pressure. Whereas Doughboy Hollow had done really well for us, and there was a bit a lot of pressure to do something that was as good, if not better. You know, and we'd and we'd also just signed because of the commercial success of Doughboy Hollow, we'd signed a big deal in Australia with a, a label called Sony, who um, were you know they were like the biggest sort of label in Australia at the time and they expected, you know, there was a lot of commercial pressure on us and I him to deliver a, a really big album that would sell a lot because um, we'd taken a big advance and I think it all got a bit much for him and he just sort of, you know, it was like, fuck you. <laughs> it just didn't work out that well. So, yes. You know, and, yeah, yeah, it's just the way those things go. But then, still, which is still amazing, from you know, because not many bands would then regroup and then think, right, we'll do another album. By then, most bands are saying, "That's it. I just don't want to do this anymore." But you, but you still, you still brought out quite a few more albums, didn't you, um, for the decade? Another one called uh, "Sold" after that, which, which is sort of the album that Trace. I mean, I think I really the songwriting and the singing's. Uh, was a lot better and there were, I think it was a really good album but you know the commercial world's a bit fickle and and by that stage you know the commercially it wasn't it did it did fine but it wasn't it wasn't anything like the sort of uh, sales figures that Sony wanted and so we sort of part of company with Sony and at that stage, probably was the closest we came to breaking up. 
um, because you know up until that level, uh, up until that stage, our trajectory had basically been up and up and up in terms of income and and touring and sales and everything, and and then it just sort of stopped, and we had to sort of adjust for being you know, having wages and being a sort of a reasonably successful commercial band in Australia, sort of going back to sort of not being that. <laughs> Everyone had to go and get jobs, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we probably could have easily broken up at that stage. Um, at the time, I was really into, I started getting into a lot of sort of electronic music, not dance music, but more like, um, I think seeing Stereo Lab for the first time, really, or hearing them, really, that's that's I thought that was really cool and you know and I was listening to, there was there was a whole bunch of stuff coming out of Berlin at that stage what well, you wouldn't even call it it's not dance music it was the um was it more David Bowie the kind of Bowie's no no it was pretty hardcore stuff cool there's a band called Basic Channel it was all just blips and beeps and I really liked it because it was very it was always anti music and anyway without that I wanted to do I had this idea about I thought, well, you know, we've we've sort of done this. If we're going to keep together, I think we have to try and just have a bit. We can't expect to be commercially successful anymore, but I think we could have a bit of fun and why don't we try this? And we had, and I I bought in all of these effects and I made them keyboard driven and I tried to do all these different, I, I tried to basically move the band in a completely different direction. Um, and that was the last two albums. Um, so we did one with the very strange title of it was called Using My Gills as a Roadmap. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like a, 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 you know, almost like a Beefheart album title to me. Um, and we um, did a lot of, I did a lot of work just trying to make things sound different. And, and you know, um, I wanted to really not sound like, what we'd done before for better or for worse. Cause I didn't see the point of going on if we weren't going to change. I thought we, you know, we had to enter a new phase. So we did. And, you know, it got incredible reviews in Australia. Like we got all these sort of, you know, amazing reviews and it sold okay, but you know, and we did another one in a similar electronic sort of vein. Um, uh, and they were great, but, you know, it just sort of got a bit much at the end because people were really wanted to, you know, people wanted to see the classic die pretty when we were trying to sort of change and, you know, and after two albums of trying to do a different genre, we we, we did sort of eventually, I had, had to go, you know, because we'd all getting a bit older by that stage and people having children and stuff and they're like, so we did, yeah. So the last, I see the last two albums are the final stage of the band, and I'm still. I love those albums; they sound fantastic. Um, but they're definitely part of a, a final sort of. Uh, I would couple those two albums together, um, and yeah, yeah. I, I still love them, and Ron loves them. You know, I mean, again, he. I think he loves anything that doesn't have expectations or pressure, and they yes. had none, and he had a great singing them yeah yeah and when it came you know because it was like 2002 you decided to call it a day did it yes. um did it how did that come about did you just all sit down and say or did you and you know just not turn up to a rehearsal I mean you know it can go either no, way no, no, I, I, I'd had enough and I, w I went and saw Ron I said look 
I said, I'm le- I just said to Ron, I'm leaving the band. I don't want to do it anymore. I said, you keep going if you want to, but I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. And I, and he, I think he thought about it and thought, well, I'd, you know, if you're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it either. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. And we did, we decided we'd just, we'd let people know and just do one last tour. And that, and that was that. Yes, which is a really nice way to go. And did you initially, I mean, did it feel like a relief or did you feel a bit like, oh, my God, what am I going to do as you walk the streets thinking? Uh, I think I've been thinking about this for a while. I, you know, my other, the other thing I really like is, is bizarrely enough, archaeology, and I'd always wanted to go and do a degree. And I, I'd start, I went to Sydney Uni in about 96 started doing an archaeology degree and I was sort of I'd finished by that stage and was doing honours and so I'd, I'd sort of mapped out a different life for myself at that stage so I had I'd personally I mean I can't speak for the others that you know I mean Ron Ron has music and music has Ron and, and that's that he doesn't do anything else um, most of the other guys had other you know careers and lifestyles and but uh, you know that's all Ron does, and that's sort of why we loved him too, because he's an all or nothing type of person, and and he gives his all, and that's that. And he went eventually moved to Melbourne and started a new band, and still plays in that band to this day called the Superstitions, and that's his sort of new band. Yes, but you've you have had the odd reunion, haven't you, and the odd sort of. We have, yes. In Australia, we, we uh, about five or six years after we broke up, there was this um, very uh, popular, it started in, in London, I think, Don't Look Back, that festival where they would get people to come back and play their most popular albums. I think the Smiths oh, did yes. it in New York. New York Dolls did it. Um, and, and um, I think you know, they, get, they, they yes. I think Maybe. Iggy Pop also did one as well, where he just played a classic album. Yeah. And then yeah, they would play it from start to finish, which was a great concept, I have to say. Um, and someone in in Australia bought the rights to the the festival, and we were one of the first, they got us to do Doughboy Hollow, so we would go out and we'd play Doughboy Hollow from start to finish. And I really liked some. I didn't. I was very wary about doing any reunions, but I really, the guy, I like the concept, I like Don't Look Back as a concept and I like going out and just playing that one album from start to finish and and so we had to play a bunch of songs when, you know, we'd never played before live and it was just, it was a good, I liked doing that and that was very, very successful and ever since then we've probably played once or twice, once a year or once every two years we might go and it's just a bit of fun. People, honestly, we seem to get more people now in Australia than we used to in the old days. It was just, you know, on the nostalgia circuit, I guess it is. Yes. Anyway, we just go out every year or two and just go and play, you know, maybe Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth or something. And, and just, it's just fun and we really enjoy it and people seem to really like it. So, you know gets me out of the house <laughs> yeah, absolutely because that's one thing I've have noticed you know my other great theory you know it's often a parson of time which is 30 years there seems to be suddenly a 
need or feeling or want to archive stuff and there's you're obviously probably aware of these you know either books or films films are suddenly you know become very popular there was the chills the go-betweens the wedding present had a film about george best the album that came out made about them and um the slits and l7 so have you also yeah they've had a film as well the slits But to be honest, I haven't seen many of these films because they're all kind of either just coming out on DVD or just being shown at film festivals. So they're they're still like the chills, I have to confess. I think that I'm not even sure that's available apart from selected cinemas, which is a bit annoying. Um, But yeah, I just wondered if you've also been tempted or not you, but some fan has said, look, I want to make a film about the band. Yeah, it did happen. Um, it happened about 10 years ago, actually, um, when we first got back together again to do the Don't Look Back tour. There was this filmmaking company, these guys who were wanted to do a documentary about the band. And I said, yeah, fine, whatever. And we did um, interviews with them. We gave them a whole bunch of... Uh, stuff like um, all of these sort of clips that I collected on VHS cassettes over the years. And and then uh, six months after the, they said this project began, we got the offer to do Don't Look Back and they were really excited because we, we were going to get back to you. Because when, when they first moved to this project, there had been no concept of any reunion or anything. And then this don't look back thing happened and then they were really excited because we were going to get back together and they and they filmed the entire like concert we played in in melbourne which was this it was great it's fantastic big place blah 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 um and then so it was all going to be and then then there was nothing and then i don't know what happened it all just fell over and i've never heard from them since so <laughs> it was a film made it just never got made it was a there was a film almost made so i don't know maybe they'll get their shit together at some stage but yes, yeah i think the same thing has happened with the hard-ons as well somebody was really keen started it and then something's happened and yes yeah emails have yeah. not been replied they have had no Something like that. yes it's annoying and then earlier this year ron had his kind of horrendous moment didn't he as well with as has that all sort of has he managed to um navigate yeah. He has well. Apparent. Well, you know, it's 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 amazing. They he got, uh, you know, he was it was a life threatening situation, and he went through. He had great doctors, and he did every. He was he was really great, actually. He did everything right, and um, he the doctors were great. He had uh, he had a tumor right in his throat, but luckily it was right at the bottom of his throat, like where the esophagus meets the stomach. So not the part where the vocals are. It was right down in the middle, like at the very end of his, where it meets the stomach. And um, anyway, they shrunk it and they cut it out. And he's been told that it's completely gone and he's completely clear. I mean, you know, there's no guarantees of these things. You, you know, have to be checked every six months or 12 months or whatever. But for the moment, everything looks fine. Um, and he's he's completely free of the cancer. But, I mean, at the moment, he's recovering from the cure rather than the disease at the moment because of the operation to remove it was really a big operation and, he, you know, to be opened up 
a lot because <laughs> it's right next to his heart where the the the, um, the cancer was. The, so that's happened, and now he's just convalescing. But he's been given the all clear, and he's actually he's playing a show with his band, The Superstitions, in Melbourne um, next month. I think, yeah, so, so there you go. He's had a big year. He's had a very big year, hasn't yeah, he? Had a, so, is there, you know, I mean, so just kind of lastly, I mean, is there, do you sort of just put things for the, the band sort of on the back burner and then when when the stars align, you think, right, we're going to um, get it all yes. together again? That's basically it, you know. If everyone's fit and healthy, you know, and there's people want to see us, we'll probably go and play a show here and there. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. It's, yes. um, you never know. Because <laughs> I, I spoke to um, Woody Woodmansey, you know, the drummer from you know David Bowie, oh, Spiders from, from, from... The Spiders from Mars. The Spiders from Mars. And he was saying that when he and Tony Visconti get their kind of band together called Holy Holy to do these kind of Bowie gigs or, you know, numbers he said that you know i sort of asked how long it took for rehearsals and he said they just have two days before the first show bang through the set a few yeah. times and think that's it do you, yeah. are you are you the same with the band do you just go yeah. oh we'll just go a couple of days we'll yeah. we'll two practice days. a bit beforehand yeah. and then we'll just do it yeah yeah that's exactly it yeah that's exactly what we do i i, I normally do two days before then you know, I send everyone the set and say, have a listen to these songs and then we'll get together and we do two days and that's it. I mean, honestly, we, well, you know, I reckon we sound better now than we did in the old days. I mean, it's just, we just, it sounds great. It's a bit, there's, there's a slight sort of, you know, there's about a 5% drop off in intensity, but there's about a 90% increase in sort of, um, cohesiveness and 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 texture and feel i mean we were really you know we're just very sort of seasoned at it and it just sounds great it's really it's just the yeah it feels it feels fantastic when we play now it's it's a real privilege brilliant and just lastly what would you say to your an 18 year old self who was kind of starting out in this interesting and sometimes murky world of rock and roll i wouldn't change much <laughs> just um, make the most of your opportunities. That's what I'd say. You know, um, I, yeah, I can't think of any sort of pivotal moment where I sort of did something that I've regretted. Uh, you know, I've just done the best with with the people I met and the the opportunities I was given. And and I just I think just trust your instincts. Like you always know. Trust, you know, do the stuff you love and, 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 and someone else will love it. Yes. Well, we do. I mean, my God, you you did, you know, you've got a fantastic catalogue of material there. So um, you must be chuffed when you listen to it and you think, God, we produced that. We made yeah. that music. It's good. Yeah, I'm really happy that it's there. It makes me less sad when I grow old. Yes. <laughs> Well, the good thing is, because most bands, you know, there is the typical two albums or three, but you've actually put together a big body of work. And, and it's interesting what you were saying about your last two albums, because having been obsessed with David Bowie, you know, he was my first single and first album was Bowie, which was so lucky because it could have been no, some... Yeah, I love Bowie. You know, and I just realised, as you know, I sort of over my whole life, because he'd seemed to always be there, um, just realising that 
what he did, you know, in changing direction so many times, especially in the 70s, you know, where you thought, God, he made an album a year and and really went from one style to another and just kept going with it. And so it is interesting that you as a band also really experimented with what you were doing and not just as, as a solo artist as well, because that would almost be a little bit easier. But to try and get the whole band to, right. to embrace something different is quite a, a risk because yeah. most people just want to stick with what they know and, uh, I don't know, put a I don't know, string section on Whatever works, just keep doing that. Yeah, I know. No, he was quite an inspiration in doing that because, you know, I remember... You know, like from from like Aladdin Sane to Diamond Dogs was a massive jump, and then from you know going from oh God from you know Low well, was the biggest one. Well, I suppose there was Lowe yeah. Was the, well, there there was the, the station, kind of, station was yes. Well, I suppose he went from yeah. Hunky Dory. I love, I love hun- Yes, there was Hunky Dory, Ziggy. Then there was kind of, like you said, Diamond Dogs, Station to Station, Young Americans, the Soul album, and then this incredible kind of like, wow, you just gone to low. You know, that's um, not quite sure how you managed to do all that in one decade, and then produced two other albums by for people like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. So um, yeah, and only, only two of the best albums ever made as well. Like like you know, Transformer and, and Raw Power are just like absolute pivotal albums in the history of music and and like he you know he did them at the same time and lulu yes and lulu i know we can't forget <laughs> lulu no the man who sold did the world he lulu as well? yes and I, then, think he did. I think he did yeah. and then he thought you know oh dear mott the hoople are breaking up i'll just write you a song yes i'll, I'll give them a hit too <laughs> you know. so and he that, produced that i know it was, didn't he uh, produce that and he produced that as well, didn't he? I All the young dudes. I think he probably did, but but also he relocated in so many places, and I thought I don't know, yeah, quite yeah. know how you managed to do that. It, it you know it does it still to this day because yes, anyway that was boggling. But look, yeah. this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for giving me your right. time. And I'll when <laughs> I put this out, I'll probably tell John mm-hmm. as well as you. Actually, I could tell you as well. Right, that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah. And that'll be great. But yeah, look, thanks. have a great day. Mm-hmm. And what time is it with you? You too. 10.19 a.m. 10.19. Where, where actually, which city are you in? Sydney. 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 Okay, that's brilliant. Well, thanks a lot. All right, you better go to bed. I better go to bed, actually. It's nearly midnight. Okay, look, take care. And, hey, um, bye-bye. Yes, take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Bye.